Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we are going to be in week three of our Christmas series called Unto Us. And we're looking at this prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who 700 years before Christ predicted the birth and really the life, as we'll see today, of Jesus Christ. Today's going to be a a little different in a way. Today I want to talk about what I'm going to call a Christmas conundrum. So a conundrum is just like a puzzle or a riddle that's really nearly impossible to solve. Christmas is sort of that way. Now, we have the advantage of being a couple thousand years after that. We can fit all the pieces together pretty, pretty easily. You've probably, even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard about the biblical Christmas narrative in some way. You know about the wise men or the, the star, Bethlehem, or the manger, the no room in the inn kind of thing. And if you, the more that you have been in church, the more that you probably know the story by heart. You can probably quote Luke chapter 2 in your sleep when it comes to the Christmas story. So what, I, what we're going to try to do today is see how the people in Isaiah's day would have seen this as very puzzling, what he's saying, and even 700 years later, how the people of Jesus' time would have seen this whole thing playing out in his life as a conundrum. These things don't seem to go together, they don't seem to make sense, and yet they do. So we're going to put these pieces together here. So let's read, as we have each week so far, what we're going to be starting out from today, Isaiah chapter 9, we'll read verses 6 and 7, and read this prophecy from Isaiah about Jesus this Christmas season. So Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So a Christmas conundrum. The first Christmas is a bit of a conundrum. The life of Jesus in the way that it's described here is a bit of a conundrum. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at four descriptions from the list that we just looked at and put these pieces together to see how they all point to the same person and how they all point to Jesus himself. Even though they may not seem like they should on a surface level, we will put these pieces together and we'll also, uh, heads up, a lot of scripture today, because what I don't want to do is just say, hey, this all makes sense because I said so, right? Never want to do that. So we're going to look at how a lot of Old Testament scriptures align with the life of Jesus from the New Testament to see how these things really do go together. These descriptors are accurate about Jesus. So four descriptions that we'll, look, we'll kind of clump two of them together, as you'll see, but we're going to look at how these pieces fit together to solve this conundrum that is the first Christmas. So the first description that we're going to look at today from Isaiah chapter 9 is he says the Messiah who's going to come is going to be a mighty God. Now this one is the least puzzling to the reader both in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day because 
they would expect whoever's going to be their deliverer, their freer of the oppressor, to be mighty, to be used at least by mighty God. Now, again, Isaiah is saying he's not just going to be used by a mighty God. He is going to be mighty God. So that's another part of this that we have to kind of force that piece in there, but it fits. But this is a description that the ancient Jews would have been very familiar with in talking about God. He is mighty. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. So ancient Israel was very unique as an ancient people group because they were monotheistic. They worshipped and believed in only one God. They would have been the only ancient people group that I know of that would have had this philosophy. Every other ancient people group on record worshipped multiple gods, dozens, maybe hundreds of them. So they have always had this unique streak through them that, and it says it here, there is one God. We don't need all these gods because our one God can do all the other things that all your gods do on their own. He can handle everything. He can make the sun rise. We don't need a certain God for the sun, okay? He can handle the waters. We don't need a water God to handle the water. We don't need any other God. We just have the one and only, and he is mighty. He's a mighty God. He has all power, all authority, all sovereignty and control over everything. We read this again in Psalm 29, verses 3, 5, and 9. We'll skip around here in Psalm 29 to get this idea of a mighty God. Psalm 29, verse 3, the voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. See, the the sea is mighty, but God, the mighty God is over that. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. And then down to verse 9, the voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everyone shouts glory. So this God is powerful, so powerful that he has power over powerful things. He is mighty. He is so mighty, in fact, that he has all might over mighty things. Another psalm says that the the earth is like the Lord's footstool. So imagine that little footstool in your living room. Put your feet on that. The earth is like that to God. All the things that are so massive and wonderful, and what we talked about last week, the wonders of the world, those we can't even begin to understand that. God's like, yeah, that ain't no thing, right? Because he's mighty. He's bigger. He's greater. He is a God of power and might. Now, God shows himself in a very unique way to Moses in Exodus 3. It's the famous story of the burning bush. You're probably familiar with that story where at the time, Moses, as a middle-aged guy, is living kind of on his own in this foreign land as a shepherd. He's wandering around the wilderness and up on the side of the mountain, he sees a strange light kind of emanating. So, of course, it's going to pique his curiosity. So he kind of wanders over there, walks toward up, up part of the mountain and sees this bush that is on fire, yet not being consumed by the fire. That's weird enough, that's crazy enough, but it gets even crazier because God speaks to him from this burning bush. And what God says to him is, Moses, he probably, I don't know, maybe, we just assume God has a voice like that. He may not, he may just have a normal voice, I don't know. Anyway, so God speaks to him and says, hey, I've seen my people in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. I have not forgotten about them. And Moses is like, hey, that's good news. Thanks, God, this is encouraging. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Here's the thing. I'm going to deliver them from Egyptian bondage. Moses is like, oh, this is even better. Yeah. He's God's like, I'm not done yet, Moses. Actually, I said, I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to use you to deliver them. 
And Moses is like, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's, no, did I? He cleans out the ears. Like, I don't think that sounds right. Moses tries to fight against this. He doesn't think that he's got what it takes, and he doesn't. But God says, I'm going to use you to do this thing. So we read here in Exodus 3, verse 13, one of Moses' problems. Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. So this mighty God defies description. Uh, even though he describes himself in a way they would understand. I'm the same God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remember them from hundreds of years ago? Yeah, I'm the same God that spoke to Abraham. I'm going to deliver you. Tell them that. That'll get, their, that'll get them all perked up and ready to go, ready to roll, ready to believe. Whatever, whatever else you say after that, they will believe that if they hear you say that. So he, God is mighty. He defies description. He really defies a, a, a title or a name, even though he sort of has several names that uh, we would call him. He's also, and also what's important here, he says, I am. This God is mighty. He is self-sustaining. This is what we call the aseity of God. He doesn't have like a start button that somebody else or someone else or something else had to push to get him going. He is eternal, which means he has no beginning and no end. He has always existed. Remember Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it wasn't like something else was back there to create him. He was always there in the vast void of nothingness from, the be- from before there was time. That's, mighty, that's a mighty God. That's how the people would have seen him. But when Moses reveals himself this way, Moses knows, well, that's a problem because Pharaoh thinks that he's God. So the people might be okay with me saying God's going to deliver them, but when I tell Pharaoh God said to deliver them, he's going to say, well, you mean me? Because I'm divine, and that's not going to work. Well, and God knew that too. Because skip on down to verse 19, Exodus 3, 19. God says this, but this is God speaking, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. And so that's exactly what God does. God shows his might to Pharaoh, believing he is divine with these plagues, with these miracles, you know, a plague of frogs just appearing out of nowhere, darkness covering all of Egypt out of nowhere, the, the water turning to blood out of nowhere, a plague of boils attacking all the Egyptians out of nowhere. And then finally, after nine of these uh, plagues come, God showing his might, Pharaoh is still not convinced, still not willing to let God's people go until the 10th one, which shows God's might over life and death. So the 10th plague is the death of the firstborn, right? Where God says, hey, on this night, all firstborn male children in all of Egypt will die unless, and the people of Israel ain't, well, not Israel yet, but you get what I'm saying. He says, if you paint the, the doorpost of your home with the blood of a lamb, the death angel will pass over you. That's where the Passover comes from. And so the Egyptians don't do that, and therefore firstborn sons die. There's wailing and screaming in the land of Egypt that has not been heard of until the time of Jesus, again, a couple thousand years later. But that finally is what convinces Pharaoh. It finally breaks him when God shows, I'm mighty over everything, even life itself. That's a mighty God. 
And that's the same God that we serve today. And it's also who Jesus is as well, as we'll see here in just a minute. Israel also, when they're reading Isaiah's prophecy, even years later, even at the time, they're probably thinking about other scriptures that they've read or memorized as children that point them to this mighty God. So, for instance, Psalm 24, verse 8 says, Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord invincible in battle. Psalm 60, verse 12, With God's help, we will do mighty things. Here's, that's, here's where we see a switch here. With God's help, we will do mighty things, for he will trample down our foes. This is where a connection can be made to Isaiah chapter 9. It's not just that God is mighty just for no reason at all. It's that God is mighty on behalf of his people, for the good of his people, for the salvation of his people, for the freedom of his people. So when they read Isaiah, this mighty God, he's our Messiah, he's going to deliver us, I can get behind that. So they kind of put this first piece in some ways together, because they believe the Messiah will conquer the conqueror, he will rule the rulers, he will defeat the undefeated, he will show God's might and power. This is what the people looked for in their Messiah. But the second uh, description that we'll look at here is maybe we kind of wrap our heads around a little bit, but it's a bit strange. Because again, Isaiah's talking about a person, but then the second description that he uses that we'll see here is that not just is he a mighty God, but he is also everlasting Father. This one is a bit out of left field here because God is not seen as Father in the Old Testament Scriptures. That is not a description that you will see hardly at all. This is like one of the only places you will see that. And so for Isaiah to say, well, an everlasting Father, well, they they didn't view God that way. They wouldn't pray, our Father, the Son, is the one who kind of initiated that sort of mindset in Jesus. And so God is not seen this way, but the everlasting part, they kind of get. The, The eternal part, they get. Uh, Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, give us this idea. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. He's everlasting. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the people, when they hear this everlasting thing, they're like, yes, because that means God is faithful. He is constant. He is consistent. He is just in all that he does. He is faithful and true. And in this way, they would see how God is like a good father, someone who is there, who's in your corner, who's got your back, who will fight for you, who will defend you. They, they can, even though they wouldn't see this Messiah certainly as an everlasting father, and they don't even see God as a father, this everlasting faithful part is what's so important. And Moses also, we're hitting a lot of Moses today at the beginning, he also sees this in a unique way even before Isaiah comes along. So let me tell you what, show you what I'm talking about. In Exodus 34, verse 6, God, uh, Moses has an encounter with God, and here's one part of that. It says, as he passed, that's God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, so this is God talking about himself here, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That last, th- those last two words there, love and faithfulness, is this Hebrew idea, Hebrew word called chesed. Maybe you've heard that word before. I've preached about it before. I'll preach about it again. It is a key theme in the Old Testament. Sometimes you see a C in front of that H. That's why you have to, you know, haka when you say this word, chesed, okay? This Hebrew word means love and faithfulness. Everlasting love and faithfulness is what this Hebrew word means. And it is a key part of describing God. 
everlasting love and faithfulness. What this tells us is that God will not fail, God cannot lie, and God does not quit. That's what that word means. He is everlasting. You don't have to worry if he's going to come through, he will. You don't have to worry if he's going to be there, he'll be there. You don't have to worry if he's going to let you down, he cannot let you down. He's everlasting. So we have piece number one of this puzzle, this conundrum. He's a mighty God. Piece number two, he's an everlasting father. The next two we'll put together, and this is really the one where this piece does not seem to fit in this spot, in the puzzle that we're making here. The other two descriptions that we start out this prophecy with, uh, Isaiah says, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. So we have the first two pieces, uh, this mighty God, everlasting Father. Now we're talking about a child and a son here. Are we talking about different people, multiple people? What, did you get it wrong here? What's going on? Now Isaiah did know the Messiah is going to be a person, a human. That's what he assumed. He's going to be a human, which he was. And the people would have assumed, okay, well, if he's a human, he's going to start out as a child or a son, or maybe he's, it's a euphemism that he's using. He's, you know, it's poetic language or whatever. Uh, but they know it's going to be some sort of a person. But the question that they would always wrestle with and still to this day wrestle with is, well, what does this person look like? What kind of a child or a son will this Messiah be? Will he be the son of royalty? Right, because he talks about ruling on David's throne. He's the prince of peace. He uses these terms in this way. So he's going to be maybe like the literal king of the Jews. Like that's not a figurative term. Maybe that's who he's going to be. That's who the people thought maybe he would be. And if not a king, at least some kind of nobility, some kind of high-ranking Jewish official. You know, his son, somewhere along the line, is going to be the one who is to come that Isaiah was talking about. You know, maybe he's going to come from the good part of town at least. Could we get like some like upper middle class guy who's going to have some sort of influence and power to overthrow the oppressors that we're living under? You know, that's who these ancient Israelites were looking for. The people tried to come and go, and they thought they fit that puzzle piece, but it wasn't them. Even in the, we talked about a couple weeks ago, this 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament, there's at least one main leader who comes up, and they think, this is our guy, and he wasn't the guy. And then what happens is, when the guy does come, they miss it, because the pieces didn't fit. They're looking for this person to fit this, and it doesn't fit. And so then let's look at these again backwards and see how Jesus fulfills them. So this child-son thing, the one that is already the weirdest one to consider, is the one that Jesus did not fit the most from the very beginning. So let's go to this story in Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. Let's look at this part again. So these shepherds are out in the field watching over their sheep, and they get this angelic visit. And the angels have good news, don't they? Luke 2, verse 11 and 12, it said that the angel says this, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It's great, okay? This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby. Okay, so son and child, the peace now seems to fit together. But where will you find this child, this baby, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger? That's the first real obvious part here where this piece does not fit in this spot. Wait, the Messiah that we've been waiting for for 700 years after Isaiah prophesied about him, this child who would be the king of the Jews and be our deliverer and our savior, he's in a feeding trough somewhere 
in a barn. Is that what you're telling me, angels? Are you sure that we have the right religion? Or, or did you miss what you're, like, what's, this doesn't make, this doesn't fit. This is, this is not what we were signed up for. This is not what we're looking for. And they get there, and they're like, wait, so the baby's born in a manger to a young teenage unwed mother. Uh, her her fiancé is this blue-collar carpenter guy from a small town that no one's ever heard of. So, And that child, that son, is the same one that Isaiah's talking about. The pieces just don't fit. This doesn't make any sense. So that's why would it, be, it would have been easy, right? If I'm living in that day and I'm the shepherds, I'm going to say, this smells funny. I mean, literally, we got the animals around in the barn, but I mean, other than that, this something here just doesn't add up. Something doesn't make sense. This cannot be who Isaiah had been talking about. This cannot be the one that we've been waiting for. This baby in a manger wrapped in strips of cloth that his, you know, unwed mother decided that's all she had to write. Like that, this cannot be the guy. But he was the guy. They missed him. So I don't want us to miss Jesus. He doesn't meet my expectation. He doesn't fit my description. He says things I don't want to hear about my life, but I need to change or, or whatever. He, he says things about God that I don't understand, so I'm just going to throw him, throw him away because it doesn't make sense to my mind. Let's not say, well, this has got to fit in this way, or if I, and if I don't get it, let's just flip the table and the whole puzzle is just on the floor. Let's not be guilty of the same thing that many of the people in Jesus' day were guilty of. But when it comes to these other two, this mighty God and everlasting Father, Jesus also in his life later on, this child, this son, claimed to be these other things. And it got him into quite a bit of trouble, as you probably know. So we'll see here, he made a claim, and then his, some people believed him, and they believed him for a reason. So let's look at these last two here for just a few minutes. So we'll go back to the mighty God and everlasting Father that Isaiah talks about. Jesus claimed to be these things in himself. John 10, verse 27 through 30, Jesus speaking here says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me. He is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. Here's the claim. The father and I are one. This is a statement that will eventually get Jesus killed, literally. He's claiming to be one with God. That is blasphemy. That is a capital crime. That is a you cannot say that and get away with it for very long. And that's why Jesus died in his early 30s. Because he made this claim over and over again in so many different ways, and the people, the, the religious leaders could not take it. They could not handle it because that piece does not fit in this puzzle of our religion. That piece does not fit in the description of who you really claim to be. But it actually is the one that Isaiah predicted, this mighty God and who is at one with the Father. But even that statement is not as offensive as this one in John 8, 58. And we'll see a parallel here from something we've already talked about. John 8, 58, Jesus in a crowd answers them. He says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, where have we seen that two-word phrase before already this morning? In the burning bush in Exodus 3. Jesus is using the same words that God used to describe himself to describe himself. 
This is not bad grammar. It's like you read, before Abraham was even born, I am. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Go back to English class or whatever language you speak, Jesus, because that is not correct grammar. That's not what he's doing. The I am there, he is using specifically, deliberately to state this claim that he is divine. Before Abraham was born, your father, your ancestor from 2,000 years ago, before he was even born, I am. He existed before anything else did. He's claiming divinity. So, and again, this piece does not fit. No man can be God. No man can even claim to be God, but Jesus did. And the piece, if you just tilt it just right, pops right in there. So Jesus claimed this to be the mighty God and at one with the everlasting Father. And eventually, his followers and disciples believed him. They believed this claim. So we'll see. Here, we'll go ahead and read it. Matthew 16, 16. So Jesus is having this little powwow with his disciples. They're kind of talking about things. And Jesus says, hey, I've been hearing a lot of rumors about what people think about me and who they think that I am or who they say that I am. And he asked his followers, his inner circle, his 12 apostles here, his 12 disciples, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, this is interesting because this sounds like one description, but it's actually two things. So Messiah and God were not the same thing. Messiah does not mean divine. Messiah does not mean God. That's what really fooled people and tricked the people of Jesus' day is, okay, it's one thing for him to say he's the Messiah. We don't believe him really there either, but he claims to be God. Those things never meant the same thing. So Peter's making two claims at once here. I believe you are the Messiah, the Savior of the people, the one that Isaiah prophesied and other prophets talked about, but I also believe that you are divine. You are the Son of God. And Isaiah, you know, again, look at Isaiah's prophecy. He, he was talking about the Messiah in, in Isaiah 9, isn't he? He's talking about a person who would come, and he uses these titles to describe this person. So whatever trouble Jesus got himself into, it's Isaiah's fault, right? Because he's the one that said it first, you know. Now, of course, Jesus didn't blame Isaiah. Now, he quoted him a few times to say, yeah, he was talking about me. He didn't know he was talking about me. You don't realize he's talking about me, but he was talking about me all along. So Jesus makes this claim and his, uh, his disciples, his followers believe it. And John, we'll make, let's make one more parallel to the Old Testament here. John, when he writes his gospel about Jesus, his firsthand eyewitness biography about Jesus, here's how he starts his story about Jesus. It's going to sound familiar in a couple of different ways. This is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... Does that sound like the start of another thing? Genesis 1, the whole enchilada starts the same way. So in the beginning, God is how Genesis starts. How does John start? In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. So what is this Word? Who is this Word? What does that mean? Verse 14, the Word became human and made His home among us, and He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. That phrase there, unfailing love and faithfulness, we've already talked about that, haven't we? That Hebrew word chesed. John makes two parallels in his opening 14 verses of his firsthand eyewitness story about Jesus. 
He makes this claim, first of all, the first verse, Jesus, the word, the Greek word there is logos, that's Jesus, he is with God in the beginning, and he is God in the beginning. Everything was made through him and by him, and nothing was made without him making it. John is believing the claim that Jesus said all along that he is God. And then he goes into verse 14 and says, hey, let me show you how much God, how much like God Jesus is. The same main character trait, this hesed that God had that we know about and love about him, Jesus was full of that as well. He uses the same language here. Now, it's in a different language. It's in Greek, not Hebrew, but it's the same idea, the same phrasing in both languages that mean this same thing in our language. That's why it's translated the same way in our language, because it's the same thing in each language. Jesus was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. It's the same idea, the same connection that Jesus is God. It's powerful. So Jesus claimed to be a mighty God and at one with the Father. His followers believed his claim. The question is, why did they believe it? And it's simply because Jesus proved it. He proved it. He didn't just make a claim. He backed it up with action. One of the first ways that he does this, that we'll, we'll look at two ways, but the, one of the first ways ever that, we, that he does this is in Mark chapter 4. Early in his ministry, as far as, as, far as Mark's rec- or Peter's recalling of this is, is written down, is they're in a boat going across the sea like they do all the time with Jesus in the boat, and a huge storm comes in the middle of the sea, right? So much so that these professional fishermen who are on the sea every day think they're going to die. That's quite a storm. They are afraid for their lives in the middle of the night on this open sea where the storm is going to capsize the boat and kill them all. Jesus, meanwhile, is down in the bottom of the boat snoring, sawing logs, He is having himself a nice little nap. He's tired from ministry. They can handle the boat part. I need a nap. So so he's asleep in the middle of all this somehow. I mean, that's a deep sleep. He is a good sleeper, right? He was really tired. And I wish I could sleep like that. And so he's he's under the boat, and the disciples go and wake him up and saying, don't you care that we're going to die? Can you do something? And he's like, what is he going to do, right? It's a weird thing. What's he going to do? But what does he do? Mark 4, 39, when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, his disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Well, here's why they're afraid. The disciples were absolutely terrified and they, here's what they say. Who is this man? They ask each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. So as afraid as they were of dying in the storm, now that the storm is over, they are more terrified of Jesus. Because with three words, he stops the storm that's going to kill them in an instant. And he's like, hey, what's next? Can I go finish my nap now? Like, it's nothing. He's looking around, and they are huddled in the corner of the boat. They are terrified. And he's like, what what are you scared of now? We are scared of you. Right? Right? So Jesus is showing that he is mighty and that he's everlasting. Even in the boat when he's asleep, he's with them. And when he he wakes up, he just handles the problem right away. He shows both of these character traits to his followers. And he does this over and over and over again for two or three years. and And at some point, they finally like, okay, we get it. We understand. Okay, Jesus, you are, yes, you're the Messiah. And you also are God. Both of these both in the same. But then as we know, Jesus saved the best for last, didn't he? 
Because after all these months and months and years of ministry and miracles and doing these things that were impossible and blowing their mind and showing that he's mighty and everlasting, he saves the best for last. Because eventually he is, uh, for his claims of divinity, he is arrested, he is beaten, he is crucified and dies and is buried in the ground. And then suddenly on Sunday morning, when the disciples are all gathered together once again, afraid for what's going to happen, Jesus just happens to walk through the wall of the room that they're in and says, hey, it's me. And once again, they're terrified of Jesus in this moment. It's funny that they're afraid of something else. Jesus does something miraculous and amazing, and they're more terrified now of him than they were of the other thing in the first place. I just think that's fascinating that they did it that way. And I I can't blame them. This dude that was dead for three days literally walks through a wall into the room that I'm in and wants to hang out and have lunch. I'm going to freak out. Okay? But they, again, this was kind of the, the final nail in the coffin for them in their belief that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He didn't just talk big. He backed it up over and over and over and over again. And then, in the end, he did the same thing again to make a connection to the Old Testament. He did the same thing that God did to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage. He showed his power over life and death. Just as God was able to show that, to get Pharaoh to let his people go, Jesus showed he was the same God that was in the Old Testament, come down in human form to save us by defeating death, by showing his power over death. So Jesus does this, and it's, and it's an amazing thing that he does. So let's close with this idea. Let's bring it home here for just a minute. So what the readers in Isaiah's day did, and even the, in Jesus' day, They would read this prophecy or memorize the prophecy or quote it in church or read it or hear about it in synagogue, and they would look forward to the one who would come. What we do is we do the opposite, don't we? This time of year, Christmas, we look back on the time that already came, and we worship this Jesus who is the fulfillment of all that Isaiah said he would be. Today, Jesus is your mighty God. Jesus sees you right where you are. Jesus sees the issues that are plaguing your mind. Jesus knows how you feel, and he loves you and cares about you, and he fights for you. In the same way that the mighty God in the Psalms said he is undefeated in battle, Jesus has a perfect record as well. He has never failed. He's not not weak. He's not limited. He's not scared. He's not running and hiding from your issues like maybe we are. He is mighty, and he is everlasting. He is your mighty God. He is everlasting. He is eternal. He is co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. And with those big things, those are big ideas, right? Eternal, co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. Uh, It's true, but it seems kind of lofty. But he's also everlasting on a very personal level. Jesus is faithful to you. He's dependable for you. He's constant for you. He's consistent for you. He is always on time. He always delivers. He is everlasting. And then as the the child and the son, it's not just a, a child is born to us. It's that God's child was born unto us. It's not just that a son is given unto us. It's that unto us, God's son was given. The greatest gift that has ever been given was given on the first Christmas in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And so this Christmas and every Christmas and hopefully every day, we remember, we celebrate, and we worship this mighty, everlasting son of God, Jesus Christ.